Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at Reconditioning HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I am not going to do a formal in, uh, introduction today of Brett Bartholomew. Today is a legendary performance conversation with a good um, performance friend of mine, Brett Bartholomew. Uh, Brett, welcome today. Great to have you online, sir. Always enjoy being on with you. I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to the conversation, Scott. Yeah, well, we instigated, I mean, we've chatted a few times uh, recently about, you know, just what we're going through and the things that we're doing and stuff. And and we have this kind of mutual um, joy in what we're doing in podcasting. And we said, you know, let's just have a conversation about some things in human performance uh, and see if we can help, um, you know, people out there and, and, ironically probably the, when we talked about scheduling this a uh, month or so ago we weren't in the depths of uh, one of the most strange periods of time in human history we are now right in the middle of covid 19 and uh, so you know in a way it's kind of poignant to chat with you because i know you know you're on a mission and i think it's an amazing mission to sort of open the eyes of performance practitioners out there um, to sort of recognize that they can be more than their job in some sense and how they go about sort of preparing themselves in life for, you know, everything else that's coming at them. And, and so in, in that sense, you know, this is dropped on us. What, what has kind of come in your, in your grill recently that you sort of recognize that is even more important than, and then it maybe it was a month ago. Uh, well, I think w- what we're experiencing right now in terms of volatility, chaos, uncertainty is kind of a microcosm of what my wife and I experienced when we first decided to go out on our own. Of course, mm-hmm. nowhere near as calamitous in, in relative to a virus, right? But I'm still mm-hmm. talking about a, the relation of what you asked to what I feel now is a lot of it is what we're going through right now is improvisation. I mean, people don't nobody's solved this problem before. Nobody's been in this situation before. So you're seeing the world improvise and you're seeing the world really have to connect and communicate. And so this is something that we actually thought we were onto a little early in context of coaching, but it brings more gravitas to it because there were so many periods of self-doubt, I think, where, you know, when we ran certain workshops or stuff where that was our theme, I'm like, am I crazy? Is any of this making sense? And (laughs) <laughs> then, then after this, you know, we finally had somebody reach out that was like, Hey, and, and this is the way they said it. Um, they were like, you know, I thought kind of what you were doing, I didn't really understand it, but now I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, man, this is chaos. And we all experience chaos in our lives, but do we pay attention to it? Mm-hmm. Whether that's a self-reflection standpoint, 
uh, whether that's how we look at our self-image of, of how we think we handle chaos. Well, what we're learning here, Scott, to put it succinctly, is for a long time, we've really been losing an appreciation for the fact that leadership approaches or the right thing to do really depend on the situation people find themselves in. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I'd look at that is coaching is a form of regulated improvisation. That was mm -hmm. Pierre Bordeaux. And, and we're seeing that come to life in life right now as well. Well, the funny thing is, I, I find it ironic at times when you look at the, call it the metaphor of life, which we love being a part of, which is sport, you know, uh, in a football game, nothing ever goes, or a hockey game or a basketball, no, nothing ever goes as scripted, right? So you have these fundamental structures and systems. And if we take football as an example, obviously there's plays and, and all the systematics around that, but, you know, chaos is part of the game. And ultimately, um, you can find yourself down by 24 points going into the second half and you can either and you could analogize that to this situation right now you we're down by 24 points going in the second half yeah are we packing it in or are we playing out the are, are we going to go out and say we're pulling the, the white flag the other team can win or are we going to try to make a game of it and when you try to make a game of it and you find ways to pivot and find different directions to go and sometimes you win the game you know, and, and that's ultimately the mindset that our, we're expecting our athletes to take. Sometimes we have to take that and massage it into our own brains, right? Yeah, you're spot on. I mean, that's when you look at that, when we when we started doing some of our, our workshops that are largely improvised, like we put it's like agility, right? Agility mm -hmm. is decision making under uncertainty, very much like game theory, things like that. We talked about it's a whole body movement. We had one coach say, well, you know, I don't think improvising is a part of leadership. And then I said, you know, not the similar, the same thing you said, but I said, here's the thing. Every other field practices for some level of uncertainty or practices a skill. We have shadow boxers or we have boxers who shadow box. Uh, members of the military will partake in different kinds of special warfare training or war games. Surgeons will have to practice cutting casts off of eggplants. How do coaches train for uncertainty? I mean, many times people in the performance community say they learn it just by coaching or being quote unquote in the trenches. Uh, well, that's like saying that people only get better at their sport by competing in it. No, they practice it. And like mm -hmm. you said, because things go unscripted. So you know what you have to use the same things that leaders use contingencies, you know, in leadership contingencies can include cultural differences, uh, the level of environmental stability, the type of industry you're in, organizational characteristics, the temporal context, and then the characteristics of the followers, and then the characteristics of the leaders themselves. Real leadership is how all of those things come together, hmm. but you also have to have a plan for when chaos strikes at every level. And I just don't think anybody in our, and I'm not saying that we had a plan for this. This is, you asked me the other day how, how this affected us. We lost $105,000 in revenue as a company of canceled live events. But one of the contingencies we used was, well, we needed to put some stuff online. And so mm -hmm. we did that earlier, you know, and, and just to define contingencies. So we're not speaking in ambiguities for like anybody listening is that that's any future event or circumstance that is possible, but can't be predicted. So it goes mm -hmm. exactly with what you said. Mm -hmm. You can script things, but you better be ready for contingencies. And I hope, I hope this makes us all look at ourselves in a, uh, in a more reflective manner, but also one of accountability. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, a lot of, 
um, S and C coaches and performance practitioners and clinicians and things, this idea that you can't be in the same room with the person, touch the person, all this kind of stuff that's going on right now has had, um, you can look at it as, Oh, they've taken away all my tools. And now I just have to sit here and sort of watch what's going on circulate around me. Or to your point, you can have that contingency mindset in the background and maybe you didn't, I don't know know that any of us ever planned for COVID-19, but the idea is you want to plan for not the the set of circumstances that are rigidly constraining you uh, on a daily basis, that you have an open mind to what are the possibilities uh, of movement. And as an example, there's a a fellow up here, Scott Wilgris, who had already started doing some really neat um, online training with some of his Olympic athletes. And so he was able to pivot, provide some of that knowledge to the rest of the crew who trained some freestyle athletes up here in Canada and support their cause of trying to help their athletes. So the idea is not to be sort of stuck in this rigid framework but to start to look at what are the possibilities right our sponsor reconditioninghq.com is going virtual the reconditioning level one has been turned into a complete online experience and all the time tested systems and processes are now available to you in 20 hours of online video modules and two virtual zoom sessions reconditioning is a very powerful language and system of practice that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one complete package and helps you deliver the most powerful injury and performance solutions to your clients. Check them out at reconditioninghq.com today and join the reconditioning revolution. A hundred percent. You said it perfectly. COVID-19 represents a constraint. Mm -hmm. And when we look at how to create more adaptable leaders, and I just, if I can't, like I'll use the term coaches and leaders synonymously, but Mm -hmm. I think a coach, it's not just strength coach or performance coach or a sport coach. A coach is anybody who guides or orchestrates or, you know, what have you. So I'm just going to use that term as Mm -hmm. a synonym. So uh, anybody that wants to coach effectively has to have constraints. And it's not what, when we use the term improv in our workshops, people think comedy improvisation is not comedy. Yes. There's improv comedy, right. (laughs) But improvisation is the ability to essentially make something from nothing. Well, Mm -hmm. look at what we're doing. You know, my wife, uh, two weeks before COVID-19, uh, hit quit her job to join art of coaching. That's a $70,000 security net that we no longer have. You know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and a coach. I still, so right now I coach people, uh, our podcast, we do all these things, but we don't have that safety net, but we have contingencies in place because we, we know constraints will come because, you know, and some people are exposed to them earlier than later in life. Like you could also look at like, I, I have a bit of higher level of resting anxiety and, and maybe some of that is to do with a hospitalization, uh, you know, when I was younger or when my parents got divorced, um, stability wasn't really a thing in the sense that Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would stay with my mom and Tuesday, Thursday, I'd stay with my dad and weekends would switch off. Now I have a great relationship with my parents. They have a great relationship with each other now, but as a kid, that was really, that was odd for me. And I never got comfortable being stable. So I looked at my wife the other day and I said, this is really weird. Of course, this is scary for many reasons. Um, It's impacted our livelihood in many ways. But is it strange that sometimes I'm more comfortable during times like this than I am when things are going well? And that was something Mm -hmm. I honestly asked. I I don't know if that means something's wrong with me, but it's what I know, I guess. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Is, you know, do you ever feel like um, during times of stability that it's a little bit, 
more odd for you or do you find that chaos can kind of inspire you in some ways given the constraints do you have well you know it's it's funny you ask me that because i'm i find i'm a creature i'm a creature of comfort type of person but i recognize that um you know at, when you start to feel comfortable is when you're um not growing you're yeah. just you're just sort of stagnating and you know there's times where <laughs> Sitting on a beach and relaxing and having the comfort is a great thing for you to rest and recover. I mean, that's what we we prescribe to our athletes and to the, the clients that we work with. We, we need to have those times to reboot. But we should be, most of the time, kind of challenged by our circumstances because that's... Re- you know, requiring us to move, to create um, opportunities, change directions, and always sort of recognize that everything is not certain. And, and the and more it's we better rec- that way. Yeah. And if you recognize that, then when, when the SHIT hits the fan, you, you, have, you have the capacity to pivot. And I think, you know, you, I've heard you talking about this in some of your podcasts, and I know we've talked about it before. And, you know, I, and it is a generalization, but I think it's important that a lot of times as performance practitioners, we get very connected to call it our identity as those practitioners and very definitive about what our role is. And then when somebody like yourself comes along and sort of pokes the bear and says, you know, have you thought about these things? The hackle kind of goes up and says, well, you know, this is what I do. And at the end of the day, nobody's saying you need to not be who you are or what you do, but you need to be more than that. You need to have looked at all the different circumstantial um, uh, situations that might be coming at you and be prepared that you may have to pivot because that job you're in right now might not exist for you in six years from now. In the team. Yeah, that's a good point. And speaking with self-image, like that's, that's an interesting thing you see in leadership theory too, is that, and, and I can't take credit for this. This is a gentleman named Gary Uke, uh, who's out of the University of Albany, and in an article, and this is him and, and a gentleman named Bayes and what have you, but they talk about when you look at leadership types, there's, <laughs> there's a lot that ties into self-image of what they call like allocentrics and idiocentrics. And an allocentric, and I'm going to reference this a little bit here because I don't want to do a disservice to their, um, their research. Mm-hmm. According to them, an allocentric is somebody who defines themselves or their identity in terms of the in-groups of which they belong. So I'll expand on this. They're more likely to view the actions of effective leadership uh, or leadership as being more desirable and effective to the extent on which they focus on the group or the collective versus individual self-interest, right? That's an allocentric. So you can think of them as almost kind of collectivist, thinking about Mm -hmm. the group. A lot of that is what strength coaches identify with is team goals, bigger Mm -hmm. picture. People in the performance community will, they don't want to speak to the individual, right? Mm -hmm. In contrast, idiocentrics, typically view the individual as having primacy over in-group goals. Um, Idiocentrics tend to be more motivated to satisfy self-interest, personal goals, even if that is at the expense of group interests or not. Hmm. Here's the fascinating thing, right? Even though idiocentrics may view leadership behaviors that reinforce actions that are good for the overall group and those being less in conflict with their own self-interest, it doesn't mean it's better. What they find is both allocentric and idiocentric approaches work really well in leadership. Why? Because as you alluded to already, Scott, it depends on the situation. So if you look at leadership and you look at the self-image and then you look at 
um, our perception of what effective leadership is. And then you look at somebody's ability to be contextually adaptable. That lends insight into which behavior is truly, quote unquote, right. Um, because it, it depends on too many causal relationships. There's no script for this. I would say, of course, you know, we're not going to get into extremes here. I think your listeners are discerning enough to know what I'm saying is not that you should take selfish desires and loot and hoard. And, but we are saying that much like airplanes, uh, pilots tell you in attendance, if you don't put your own mask on at times first, you can't help anyone else on the plane. Mm-hmm. And so what I think is even more interesting with this self-image is all the kind of, we're seeing people say, oh, if you're making money during this time or you're not just using this as time to reflect and be silent, you're bad. And it's like, wait a minute, my local restaurant down here has waived delivery fees, but they're still serving food and making money. Why is it bad for other coaches to adapt their behavior, whether it's making money in an ethically responsible way or whether it's using this to draw awareness to something else that they're doing for PD. It, like, where is this playbook of the, <laughs> how we're all supposed to behave? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I assure you ones that tell people how to behave in China are not the same in Russia as in the U S and who's to say we're right or they're, I'm so tired of the self-righteousness baked into the self-image of our community. And I hope that this challenges it. I'm sorry. That's a rant, but man, like, I have to say that because I don't think anybody else wants to touch on mm-hmm. our community can can be that way. This collectivist, self-righteous kind of mantra. Well, it's an interesting point to pivot off of because when we first chatted about the the conversation, we, we this conversation, we talked about this idea of an integrity gap and what people's values are and what they actually exhibit as their behaviors. And, you know, I don't think there should ever or is ever a, a, a complete um, – overlap recognition that you're going to be perfect no. uh, and nor should you be perfect you should be always challenging yourself to improve and be better and more connected but if you espouse a certain set of values and you believe in these things then your behavior should exhibit some relationship to that and when they don't that's you know what we can refer to as an integrity gap and i think that that permeates it permeates many industries, but it is a part of our industry in essence. What we what we say we we want people to do and what we say we believe isn't always what we actually do ourselves or deliver on. Thoughts on that? Matrix Fitness is one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Their equipment and programs are used by athletes and coaches at all levels globally. COVID-19 has changed and will change so many things. During these uncertain times, Matrix's team of engineers have quickly put together its free home workout app and youth at home workout programs. With its launch just a couple of weeks ago, they now have first responders, pro athletes, and average folks using the guide to help them with their daily movement. This is a great example of how Matrix strives to be the best fitness company in the world to serve people and communities is their goal. You can download their free app and see additional resources at matrixtotalsolutionssupport.com. That is HTTPS www.matrixfitnesssolutionssupport.com. Yeah, um, if I heard you correctly, just talking about the integrity gap and and what we say we do versus what we actually do in terms mm-hmm. of our behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I want I want to consolidate it because I'll go on a rant. I think that <laughs> I think that coaches are, are really good at utilizing forms of impression management 
um, as uh, a way to oftentimes appear more morally, morally virtuous, true blue, authentic, um, whatever you want to look at credible than they really are. I think that in leadership in general, there's too much of this wishy-washy um, motivation, inspirational, almost kind of servant-based leadership kind of stuff where we're, if you are inherently a servant-based leader, and let me say, I do appreciate the idea of servant leadership. I understand that the idea, if you boil it all down and get rid of the jargon, is that you're helping somebody overcome, right? You're in it for them. I, I appreciate that idea. What I don't like about this concept of it or the title is that it insinuates if we serve or we supplicate or we try to go that route that things are going to be better. Um, it does bug me in our field that so many people try to separate themselves acting like they have the right way to do something or like a big one is coaches saying they don't market and they don't believe in monetization of, of certain things. Well, what they don't realize, if you, if you understand research in impression management, what they're using is what's called an exemplification tactic. It's saying, I believe I'm like, if I don't do it for the money, you're basically saying I'm in this for the right reasons and I'm better than you. And where's that fall in the integrity gap where certain people post stuff on Instagram or Twitter to get likes, even if it's helpful um, and I don't view that as any better or worse than people behind closed doors. And I know them, there are people that will like support my work, uh, when we're private, right. They, Hey man, I like what you're doing. But when they're around other people out of their in group, they denigrate it. And that's life, right? People mm -hmm. participate in double speak, but I don't think that there's enough acknowledgement and ownership over how bad that can be in our field. Mm -hmm. So I think we're so worried about helping athletes, uh, you know, transcend this integrity gap. I really think more coaches and the coaching profession as a whole needs to look inward. Mm -hmm. um, this whole purity movement and uh, we just, we identify way too much with what we do and there's not enough people being real. There's not mm -hmm. enough people just saying what they actually believe. They're so scared of not being liked or they're so scared that somebody's going to read a tweet and they're going to get fired that they'd rather put out BS uh, or play these little micro political games and be themselves. So in short, I think coaches before they ever worry about helping athletes overcome an integrity gap, need to take a hard look at themselves, myself included, man. I like this. Yeah. I'm not exempt from this. I, this is why I put myself out here is every day I'm on YouTube or every day my book stays on Amazon. People reserve the right to judge my work based on its merits. And mm -hmm. it's a big reason why I have put myself out there is I wanted to find out if I was full of crap, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, time will tell. Well, I mean, that's the reason why I really wanted to hear your thoughts on it is because, I mean, for me, I've gone through various cycles in my life where, and fundamentally, I I refer to myself as, a, in essence, for a long time, very object referred. And, and I didn't even recognize it as that, but I was focused on, you know, I want to get that job or, you know, work with that team or with that athlete or whatever, um, because I wanted to, you know, express the, 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 how good I was at what I was doing, so to speak. And whether that was a physical goal or, uh, you know, one of those things I would do, and I would always get to the top of the mountain. I would feel sort of this, this emptiness. And I, you know, would run into the burnout syndrome where I was exhausted or what have you. And following this sense of that, go back to that concept of integrity gap. My belief was that if I worked hard, if I did good work, if I, you know, served the community of the athlete, et cetera, that I was going to, and I would, you know, do this 
this job great, that everything was going to be rosy. And I, I was never connecting with who I was, what, what was making me feel inspired and fulfilled. And yeah. so, you know, seven years ago or so, I started shifting gears on that and started to recognize that I needed to be more um, self-referred, more connected to who I want was and what I would express then in essence to the athletes that I worked with and the projects I worked in would be a more centered human being from which all of these things would de- develop. And, you know, I, I haven't changed being a coach or what it is I bring to the table. I just changed the, the lens of the way I look at things. Yeah. Cause what we're, what, well, what you're talking about there is in a way of one, let's address what you said about if I get this job and, you know, you kind of alluded to the, the second mountain or at least the first mountain, that's what many coaches do is they self-identify so much that they think they become the logo of the school or the university or the sports team, right? We're, we're seeking validation. Um, I don't think coaches will ever want to admit this. And if they do, they'll never admit it like to me because I get a lot of heat because I'm, I'm too young and I shouldn't be talking about this stuff or what have you. But, um, the reality is, is somebody asked me one night, what do you think coaches go to bed at night and wonder strength coaches? And I say, well, I think a lot of people in the performance community go to bed at night wondering, am I good enough? Um, because if you look at our field, a lot of it is based around validation um, you know, people start lifting weights, they want to get stronger, they want an edge, um, you know, they're inherently competitive. Every human being has some element of insecurity. So when you combine insecurity, uh, competitiveness, uh, usually a blue collar work ethic, and then scarce resources, well, you get what we see in our community a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's probably one of the only reasons my book, Conscious Coaching, sold so well is after 16 years of being ashamed by it, I was okay to admit that I was hospitalized for an eating disorder. Um, I was okay to admit weakness. And then all of a sudden floodgates opened up of other coaches, whether their marriage ended, whether they had a similar circumstance, whether they did something else, like people felt like they could share these things. I really do. I think our field is wanting to share these things and be more real, but they don't know how, or they're looking for the right leader to tell them that it's okay. Mm-hmm. They're looking for the right person. That's maybe, you know, cause we, we identify with people that, that we feel like look like us or act like us. And it's no different than, and I think, did you have David Epstein on your show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So range, right. You look at that. Mm-hmm. What if a strength coach wrote that book? Mm-hmm. I would, I would assume many people would say, Oh, you're telling us that through exposure and a wide variety of circumstances and accrual of different skill sets that, you know, we're going to broaden our perspective and overall do better in our personal and professional lives. No shit. You know, that's what people would say. Um, but David Epstein and, and obviously his writing ability far surpasses many. Um, so I'm not saying that's the only reason, but David Epstein isn't a threat to many strength coaches. Mm. So you can read that book and say, my goodness, but we're still so caught up in this inward thing that that self-image is, is pretty dangerous. Um, Mm. so I think you hit the nail on the head with that of what we tend to chase early on. The irony is you get to people that are at the top of the mountain, Scott, and what, what do you find? they're actually trying to come back to the second mountain of having a better, simpler life because they realized that stuff didn't bring them happiness overall, mm-hmm. did it? Yeah, it is a, an overreaching thematic for a lot of people as they go through through their lives. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious because you've said this to me and I've heard it on your podcast a few times where, you know, you've been challenged at times with, um, you know, the some of the stuff you're doing because it does – poke the bear in some sense and in some people. And I'm, 
curious, what has been the overall response when you do a course where you talk to, you have a great group of people in the room and they're all sort of challenging themselves. How has that worked for you? Has it been, uh, has it been, um, inspiring? Has it been challenging? Has it rocked your world at times? Like what's, what's, what's come away with some of those, those courses that you've done? Here again with another word from our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, the new disruptor in the performance apparel world. Zenkai uses a brand new technology that repels liquids, keeping you cooler during intense activity as the sweat evaporates naturally off your skin. This allows athletes to regulate body temperature easier and push themselves harder as we harness the power of our sweat. Sweat is our friend. Keep it on you. Zenkai Sports is also the only performance apparel company which is cotton-based. All of their gear is over 65% cotton and some pieces over 95%. Cotton is biodegradable, feels great against our skin, and is much better for our environment than synthetic-based apparel. Please go to ZenkaiSports.com for more information and for 20% off your entire order. Just use the discount code LYM20. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm not trying to poke the bear by telling people communication is (laughs) important. But I think some people's bear gets poked. I know, but it's so funny, right? Right? I'm not, I'm not saying the back squat's dead or I'm not saying we should now call change of direction, something else and agility, something else, or that strength isn't uh, as impactful as we think, or, Hey, the depth jump doesn't actually address muscular tenderness structures. Like I'm just telling people communication is very hard. It's very important and we need to practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but again, that attacks self-image of what now I got to invest in this. And most importantly, who are you to tell me, you know, and, and it really is only certain small people in our community, uh, a small percentage. One thing my wife reminds me of, and this is admittedly a very big weakness of mine, man, do I get more upset at the one out of 100. Mm-hmm. Most people have been so wonderfully accommodating and accepting and uh, joyous about this kind of stuff. Um, and that was nice. I mean, the, the people that took to it the most or the earliest were members of the tactical community. Uh, military, uh, older coaches who have, you know, been to the first and second mountain, um, members of businesses who tens of millions of dollars gets invested in interpersonal skills training. It's always just been one or two people here and there that get really mad about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's helped me in some ways because it helps me go deeper down a rabbit hole. For example, when people would say, well, these are soft skills, I had to remind them that research on sociology psychology, um, interpersonal influence far predates that of strength and conditioning. Um, and also that this isn't a competition. My wife and I had Mexican last night. We're going to have Asian food tonight. You can, mm-hmm. you can appreciate both. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing in any of my body of work says that training is not important. What it does say is that out of 285 coach development programs, as of a meta-analysis in 2016, 6% focus on interpersonal skills. You want to talk about an integrity gap. What about a professional development asymmetry? Mm -hmm. And so what's fed me is we did one um, in Alabama where we had strength coaches, a member of the FBI, a lovely woman who worked in logistics of a large company who only got to communicate and interact through computer, um, a business owner, and seeing that cross influence of discussions about communication and relationships I could sit there with a glass of wine and enjoy that discussion for days. Mm. I loved it because everybody starts to open up around day two of realizing none of us are as good as we think we are in relationships and communication. 
and Scott, we're not doing trust falls. We're not doing rah-rah stuff. Like we're actually exposing ourselves through putting interactive constraints where we videotape, we break it down with a, an evaluative tool and we give each other peer and self-feedback. It's very uncomfortable. Mm. But I just find that my second mountain is being around people like that. Mm. It's being around people like you that we're okay with being exposed because we don't really have anything to hide. Like, come watch me coach. I'm imperfect. Come, mm. come watch me. Come, come to my house. It's messy. Um, mm. So is great leadership. Great leadership is messy. It's funny. One of my favorite shows right now, actually, that I love watching is The Voice. And I love watching The Voice because they love the interaction with the artists from, you know, the coaches and stuff. But one thing that's always struck me is how, um, and I mean, I'm not in the artistic community, but this is something I've always noticed that for the most part, the artistic community understands that they have to receive feedback in order to grow. But we don't seem to understand that in the performance community. Uh, and, and yet we're willing to give feedback to the athlete, everybody else. The, yeah, exactly. But we that's don't a self-righteousness. <laughs> that's a, I mean, it is It's like, or how about this one at one of our early beta tests for this? And I don't mean to cut you off. I just think, no, no. Uh, uh, we had a coach of let, let's say 20 years. Right. And I'm going to make up the industries and in just to protect the identity. Cause it's not meant to be denigrating. It's a lesson. Uh, he had, he had worked a long time in the NBA, very experienced coach. And through one of the exercises, a young personal trainer of a, a general health membership had given him feedback, particularly on his body language and the tonality of speech, given the role-playing exercise we were doing. And, you know, I, we asked the guy, you know, how'd you feel about that feedback? And he said, well, no, no disrespect, son. Um, and I'm paraphrasing. He goes, but I've done this at the highest level for 20 years, and you're just starting out. One thing you're going to learn is pop, 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 pop. Somebody else in another industry raised their hand and said, can I chime in on what he just said? I go, please do. And they said, your expertise is warranted. Uh, but understand that if you work in the NBA or in this field, the majority of your demographic is indicative of this person, a representative of this person's age group, 19 to 21, and they don't have the level of knowledge you have. So why would you discredit his feedback based on his perception when no, your expertise only matters to a certain degree to these other people who, like him, have their own perceptions. Mm -hmm. And the guy was just kind of, he was very defensive at first. It's first that it's at first they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they join you. Mm -hmm. But over, over the next five minutes of discussion, he came to understand that to be the case. Mm -hmm. um, we're very defensive about feedback because, again, going back to your original concept of self-image, what do we try to do? Self-enhancement, self-preservation, or self-protection? Right. Mm -hmm. Most people don't want that feedback because it hurts. It really hurts. It show, even though we know we're not perfect, somebody else has exposed that in the moment. And we're scared that it could cause us to lose our job. It could lose our credibility. But man, it's so much dangerous, so much more dangerous, Scott, going through life without feedback. Mm -hmm. And there's certain feedback you should ignore. I ignored the one star Amazon review that said your book cover should have been red. I find the color <laughs> off putting. Okay. Right. The, the person that goes to a Thai restaurant and puts an a review up that says the food was too spicy. Well, ignore that. That person shouldn't have eaten Thai food. They should go eat spaghetti. Um, so <laughs> you shouldn't accept every kind of feedback, but you know what I'm saying here. Yeah, absolutely. I get it. That's, that sort of actually inspires me to chat a little bit about, um, you know, I've listened to a few of uh, Brene Brown's books, you know, on vulnerability and all this kind of stuff. And I love the, the, the knowledge paradigm that she's sort of shifted in the world, but I do understand that sometimes it's hard for 
um, our industry and when you get into coaching and sort of that 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 sense you have to pres- provide leadership that people perceive as ironclad mm. um, and and what vulnerability is and I, re- I remember at one point in one of her books her talking about having to talk to a big a big group of tactical guys in the military and asking the question can you be courageous without being vulnerable and everybody sort of said, no, you have to be vulnerable in order to be courageous. And in essence, I think sometimes when you take the most macho military dudes out there, they are more comfortable with taking feedback and recognizing that they are at fault and being vulnerable so that they survive um, than we are at times as coaches, uh, either as head coaches for a team or as conditioning coaches or performance practitioners or even therapists like i think lead therapists sometimes struggle with that like i'm supposed to be in charge i'm supposed to be the 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 authority figure of this medical situation and so what i say goes thoughts on that or your view your feelings on that matrix fitness produces training equipment that focuses on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike with equipment that focuses on building speed power and explosive performance in the most efficient manner matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide as a global brand with local support the matrix performance team assists their customers with solutions research and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best help athletes prepare for competition and get better follow them on facebook and instagram at matrix fitness canada for the latest updates around the success stories that document what makes matrix unique as an equipment manufacturer yeah i just think members of that tactical community to go back to your example are a really special example i think they get it because and i was so taken aback when i started working with them more on this stuff because uh it was just really refreshing to see how much they accepted it. And I asked them, I go, why, you know, if you don't mind me asking, why is it, you guys don't seem to have many objections and questions. I'm not, I'm not used to this. I'm used to the Semmelweis reflex. And the guy said, <laughs> he goes, Oh, it's real simple. Uh, we deal with um, life and death, not wins and losses. <laughs> and he goes, if, if somebody wants to say communication isn't important, tell them to come uh, breach a door or try to sweep a room or take part in tactical maneuvers with us. The minute you don't communicate, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to give somebody credit. He's, uh, he's actually involved and he spearheads uh, the performance side of Seesaw, right? Which uh, like Kevin Serrate. And I don't know, it could be Kevin Sear. Kevin, I love you, dude, if you're listening. But I have no idea how to pronounce your last name, and that's on me because I teach interpersonal skills. Um, But he had me up really early, and he's always asked very, very thoughtful questions. And I I can't wait for him to get to one of our apprenticeships because him and his team use this. Um, Just like, again, like if you look at uh, the other day, we got a notification. A friend of mine lives near Fort Bragg. Um, if, if people look up Robin, R-O-B-I-N, SAGE training, that's the military's unconventional special warfare exercise. And again, a lot of it is games and, and, and simulated bombs and gunfire. We have to simulate these conditions in our life if we want to be more prepared. This is not a tough concept to understand. If you want to be a more effective communicator, you and leader, you need to be put in these situations. And that's why the role playing we do, it's, you know, it's not, it's meant to be realistic to a degree, right? We'll, we'll actually put people in these case studies scenarios, Scott, that we, 
that we create and, and we aggregate from other members, but we also elevate the challenges. So, so one example, and I think you'd appreciate this, is we do a game and it's a combination of serious and, and more fun games, right? Because again, going back to self-image to keep the central theme, right? Accurate. We find that people are more likely to adopt the, the games that are a little bit loose, more loose at the beginning, because if they fail, oh, well, it's, it's not serious, right? Mm-hmm. When we get them in their actual situation, they'll get angry. So we play a real simple warm-up game, and it's called Last Letter First. So uh, I trained an athlete yesterday, and I said, hey, Henry, how do you feel today? And he said, I'm sore. Well, what's the last letter in the word sore? E. Right. So I'd say everywhere or anywhere in particular. He'd say, well, really in my shoulder. That's R. Really? Tell me about So we'll, we'll put people where they have five different people in a role-playing exercise. We'll give them context, right? You're a physio, um, you're rehabilitating or using reconditioning exercises and uh, modalities to help somebody get ready for the Olympics. They're pretty reticent. They had bad uh, uh, care in the past, and they don't really believe in a certain method. You have to influence them or resolve this interpersonal conflict through using last letter first. You know what that teaches them? Listening. It -hmm. teaches them to really listen to what, Mm -hmm. and so somebody could easily say, well, I'll never do that. Well, it's not about the last damn letter. It's about, will you slow down enough to listen (laughs) as opposed to just responding with what you want, right? Like the, just like COVID is an example of a constraint. These games, serious or not, are an example of a constraint, Mm-hmm. And, and so when people say, well, I don't know if I could teach my staff the game, I'm like, you don't present them as games. You know, I just like I don't present a cone drill as them playing the game of American football, right? It's a component that teaches them something based on an environment and tightening this uh, space of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I yeah, I, I don't know. I feel, I'd like your take on that. You know, how you look at these kinds of things. And, you know, when you got to a certain level in your career, you know, did you use certain constraints in your practice to kind of almost overcome? Everybody's got some level of imposter phenomenon, right? And I'm sure you wanted to test your skill set in certain ways. What are some ways that you use constraints to do that as you evolved as a practitioner? Well, I think one of the most powerful constraints is to is to mentor is to put yourself in a position where you have to actually explain why you do things but not from an imposition perspective but from a true explanation perspective so you know when you when you like people get into arguments and and they start espousing a whole bunch of information but they don't necessarily say anything say anything and it's it's what do you know or what do you feel you know? Why do you know it? And what if you're wrong? Like, can you answer those three questions? So what is it you feel you know? Why do you feel you know it? And what if you're wrong? You know, and I don't think we ask that question enough. And I think when you're in a mentorship position, you should be able to answer those questions so that when somebody asks you, you know, why do you do so-and-so, you know, exercise before A or B, after B or, or in this, you know, framework or with that load? You can say, this is what I understand I'm doing and why I'm doing it. This is what I believe is happening. And I also recognize that it may not work. And the way I assess it is by seeing what the outcome is. 
And I don't think we do that enough in our performance paradigms where, you know, we script the program, we run the program, we run the program like a computer program, and then we sort of move to the next program. And we're not necessarily reflecting on why are we doing it? What is the real outcome we want? And are we assessing whether we get that outcome? We have a lot of talk. We talk a lot about outcome measures and things like that, but sometimes we get too much linked on the data side is is re, are we really moving in the direction we want to so to come back on a circular question i look at it from that mentorship piece checks me it makes me question my biases it makes me challenge myself because the person's going to ask me i hope hard questions and i encourage them to ask me questions mm-hmm. and to be interested and curious you know that curiosity within the context of what i do Here again with another word from our sponsor, Zenkai Sports, the new disruptor in the performance apparel world. Zenkai uses a brand new technology that repels liquids, keeping you cooler during intense activity as the sweat evaporates naturally off your skin. This allows athletes to regulate body temperature easier and push themselves harder as we harness the power of our sweat. Sweat is our friend. Keep it on you. Zenkai Sports is also the only performance apparel company which is cotton-based. All of their gear is over 65% cotton and some pieces over 95%. Cotton is biodegradable, feels great against our skin, and is much better for our environment than synthetic-based apparel. Please go to ZenkaiSports.com for more information and for 20% off your entire order. Just use the discount code LYM20. I'm glad you said that because you talked about curiosity and vulnerability and all these things. I also think a key aspect of of true leadership, adaptive leadership, is uh, creativity. Um, I, I think that that, again, goes back to this improvising, being able to make something from nothing. Um, I once got lit up on Twitter by somebody saying that they thought creativity is not essential to coaching or effective coaching. And I just couldn't, oh. I couldn't disagree more. I think that every day, again, if you want to adapt to constraints, that, I mean, there's, what, what is that? Um, man, it's a great documentary. It's uh, In Search of Greatness, I think, mm-hmm. where they talk about Wayne Gretzky and all these great athletes. And they talk about how many of them were great improvisers. They are creatives. Mm. They use their sport as art. And so, you know, and I give credit to David Joyce because he came on our podcast and did an excellent show. And he's so well-spoken and he's such just a, man, if there was one guy, you know, it's like Morgan Freeman is, is the voice of God in so many movies and right, mm. rightly so. I think David Joyce could be the voice of like just your ideal mentor. He's mm. so calming um, like Stuart McMillan said, you have dulcet tones. Uh, <laughs> David is right there with you. And we did an episode on creativity and coaching. Is it necessary? And I just thought he did a great job elucidating key facts and takeaways there. What are your thoughts on do you th- and feel free to disagree. Do you think creativity? I, I absolutely think it's important. And it's funny. It almost circles us back to the beginning of this conversation, because when you get into a situation of scarcity, like we're starting to feel, you have to be more creative, right? And so I think sometimes when you're in your comfort zone, your your process and your programming becomes routine. And I think it's the challenge of having different circumstances, different scenarios, the chaos uh, that challenges you to grow pro- uh, professionally and to be, to to embrace that creativity you know i look back i think one of the most valuable things for me was my early uh call it childhood of performance practitioner was i was working at a a major university in canada with a very small gym not a lot of budget we had an 800 square foot gym had to train 277 athletes at the school and we 
you know, I would go in there, had very little equipment. So I used to run beer bashes on Friday nights to raise money so I could buy weight plates so we would have more load for the guys and the gals who were training. Uh, you know, I had to be creative to create programming, to go out and buy. You know, we didn't have hurdles and cones and all this stuff. We didn't have any budget. So I, I, I did these beer bashes so I could buy hurdles and cones and, and run agility drills. That was creativity. So I think sometimes when a strength coach is, uh, you know, early – um, internships are at one of these massive NCAA schools with all the toys and the bells and whistles. Well, now you don't have to be creative. You just run the program. So, you know, ch choosing to put yourself in these austerity situations sometimes and recognizing that there is value in you having to, to figure it out is, is huge. Yeah. I think, um, with that, yeah, I, great word, by the way, austerity, great word. One issue that I think that is so interesting tied to all this is why do we keep trying to mold coaches of the future based on antiquated principles, right? Like getting new foundations. I, um, I don't know if this will make some people mad, but one of the best books I think I've ever read that is a really good, in my opinion, uh, outline of, of where kind of performance can be sometimes is The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Uh, have you ever read that? No, I haven't. No, it's, it's the whole, this whole idea of the collectivist versus the individual. And this isn't getting into spiritual stuff or religion or what have you, but there's this opening line where this young architect and granted, he's an, he's an arrogant young architect. Um, cause he's very stuck on, you know, what he wants, but he's being told, you know, uh, through the, I think it's the Dean of his school that he just needs to fall in line. Cause this architect by the name of Howard Rourke believes that when you create a building or a structure, it should be original. And in other words, no material should be used to replace another material. You shouldn't treat marble like steel or steel like wood. Those, those are all have different foundational purposes, pun intended in architects and architecture. And the Dean was like, you, you know, you're wrong. Look at the classics. We should constantly mold everything we do after them because they've lasted for a reason. And he points to a picture of the Parthenon, right? Obviously a, a classic, beautiful structure. And he goes on and on to scold Rourke in his own way, uh, basically saying there's a reason things like that have lasted the test of time. And there's this line and Rourke says, you really want to know, he knows he's getting kicked out of school already, Scott. And <laughs> he gets up and he goes, that's not a classic. That's basically a, that's basically a piece, right? That's not that's a piece of trash. And he's not, he doesn't say it like that. Right. But he's just like, it's not what you think it is. Just kind of like coaches that think if they just stick on this old self image of the uh, servant based leader and transformational leadership and all this all the time, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the old school coach and you don't need to be creative. It's just got to be foundational principles. Um, so Lord goes on to say, he goes, look at the famous flutings on those famous columns that you talk about. He goes, what are they there for? to hide the joints in wood when columns were made of wood. Mm. Only these aren't made of wood. They're marble. And he says, the triglyphs, what are they? They're wood. Wooden beams, the way they had to be laid out when people began to build wooden shacks. So he says, your Greeks took marble and they made copies of their wooden structures out of it because others had done it that way before them. Then your masters of the Renaissance came and they made copies in plaster in marble of copies in wood. Now here we are making copies in steel and concrete copies in plaster 
of copies of marble of copies made in wood. And it just floored me when I read that, because whether that's true from an architectural standpoint or not, I, I'm not that guy. I can't tell you. The principle is, is that when you try to create a template of how everybody else should behave in every circumstance all the time, that is a losing strategy because it ignores contextual propriety. That's fascinating. I, you know, that makes me think, um, it, it, it ignites something in my brain that's always been a pet peeve of mine, which is, I think, you know, you'll hear this kind of um, argument in, in the interworld about, you know, specificity of training and what that means and people getting all bent out of shape about, you know, well, we just need to do the fundamentals well, et cetera. But then if you go over and you look at the whole world of athletics of track and field where fundamentally the coach is also most of the time the strength coach so you take the Stu mcmillans you take the dan paths and these guys what are they doing they're they're creating qualitative specific training dynamics to improve movement over time they've looked at all the different shapes that are being created they found strategies to to um, change and modify those movements they they overlap and overlay strength training paradigm and programming in order to improve that it's it's a co-weaved process because they they are in both blocks but all of a sudden when we go to the strength coaches working with the football player he's all of a sudden saying well i only put him in the squat bench and and clean because that's what the technical coach does he does all the stuff on pivoting and change direction everything well at the end of the day you guys should have a a synergy of brain power and understand what it is you're each doing they don't don't want it right because they don't want it people get into this field too many times just because they love training so they want to operate in a vacuum right that coach loves lifting a certain way and he likes the process of getting them strong in this way he has no interest in doing it Now he'll talk to his team, again, integrity gap. He'll talk to his team or the athletes about doing it for the greater good, team goals, bigger picture, in this together, get ready for battle, all this other stuff. Yet they have no desire to connect, collaborate, or be uh, exposed to other ideas. Um, I mean, that's why when you go to every strength and conditioning conference, I mean, all you have to do is give a talk on speed or squatting and you'll pack the house right? You'll pack the house. And it doesn't matter if somebody has watched it a million times. If you have four talks on squatting or how to teach the clean or uh, agility or whatever, they'll pack the house. You have a talk on coaching science and how it, you know, but again, message and messenger, you, you give that same talk to David Epstein or a Brene Brown, assuming they could write, like, let's say you gave them a script and they could find a way to weave it or whatever, or an Angela. Now, now it'd be packed because these coaches have read these books and they're not threatened by these people. So the mm. words coming out of their mouth fit into that. And that's, mm-hmm. again, the funny thing about the integrity gap. It's like, where is our integrity? Mm-hmm. Like we're sitting here looking at, we just want to do things that we're comfortable with. Uh, they'll pay thousands of dollars to go watch um, somebody who is very binary, black and white, talk about their elite training methods, yet they wouldn't spend 200 or $300 to go learn, um, you know, something on how to, how to connect or do this or do that. But Listen, that's, isn't that human history, right? Mm-hmm. You look at that and you look at how people just marketing. We can't get people to quit smoking, even though they know it causes cancer. You can't get people to brush their teeth, even though it can prevent gum disease. Um, what you find is a common theme of people not wanting to be told to do the basic things they should because we're all taught to believe there's some secret. Mm-hmm. 
there's some secret that allows us to stay in our own little, our own little warm and cuzzy hubble. Um, and, uh, life's easier that way. Well, I think, I think that's one of the greatest outtakes of, of a situation like we're in right now is, is people will recognize when forced to recognize that they need to have more tools in their toolbox, more directionality, more, um, capacity to understand and, and prevail through chaos. And I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're doing is, uh, exceptionally, uh, empowering for, for coaches and I'm glad you're doing it. And, and for, for me to, to, to chat with you about that stuff is, uh, is a privilege. So good on you, sir. No, it's, um, it's a privilege for me. You, um, you are somebody that I wish I just had next door. <laughs> I mean, I do, I wish I could just come chat with you all. I mean, I, every time I talk to you, whether it's over the phone or anything else, I, uh, I don't really know how to put it into words, but I'm really grateful. You have a very comforting, unique, inquisitive, thoughtful way of thinking through things and an even more unique way of describing them and discussing them. And I appreciate you. I hope to get you to one of our, uh, on me, come to one of our workshops. I would certainly love, oh, I'd to, love have to you there. Love to. When we, when the dust settles on us, not, not being allowed to shake hands, we'll get together. <laughs> of course. Dude, of course. this has been a great uh, hour. And, uh, I love, like you said, every time we have a chance to chat, this is your, my first Second guy, second time guy on the, on the, on the podcast. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Thank you. So good to have you in, in the house again today. And, uh, I wish you the best with uh, what's going on and with, uh, with managing the stress of the chaos. So good on you, sir. Likewise. Take care, Scott. You have a good day. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.